It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a bye week in the world of the National Football League, but who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, John Riley, from our San Diego studios. We welcome you to our weekly podcast as we head towards the great sports weekend. No NFL football to talk about, but boy, John, have we got a ton of topics on the table in every conceivable sport. No bye week for us. Lots to cover. Yeah, usually we think of February as kind of a down month for sports, but Hacksaw's headlines, the list is full. Okay, let's get started. But before we do that, we just want to remind everybody how they can subscribe to get all the alerts of what we're doing virtually every day of the week now with Hacksaw's headlines on our podcast. Yeah, so you can subscribe by going to the to Lee's Hacksaw, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton's YouTube channel. Uh, there you can subscribe, click on the bell, you get all the alerts, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we remind you, please go to my website. If you like sports, you'll like everything that I offer. It's all written. It's Lee Hacksaw hamilton.com if you check it every night or check it every morning you'll know every story there is in the world of sports john we've got no football game this week but let's talk about the game that's coming up a week from now and what does this mean yeah so it's the super bowls coming we talked about the changing of the guard of the quarterbacks we got two amazing young men leading their teams uh to the super bowl there's no doubt that obviously this is a new era in the National Football League, and we discussed it last week, and that is Patrick Mahomes, that is Jalen Hurts. They have a bye week here, and it's a critically important bye week before they go to Arizona to play in the Super Bowl a week from Sunday. It's critical because Mahomes retweaked the ankle injury that he had, John. He's going to get, in essence, another eight to ten days of intensive rehab. He'll do the walkthrough practices as they put the new game plan into place. But this comes at the right time for him. It also helps Kansas City a great deal because they had three wide receivers get hurt in the AFC Championship game. They were asking for volunteers when they got to the fourth quarter. Who wants to line up and who wants to play alongside Travis Kelsey? Also helps because uh, Ladarius Sneed is out with a concussion. He's going to spend probably the entire week uh, in concussion protocol for Kansas City. And linebacker Willie Gay uh, has a shoulder injury and was having an MRI early in the week. This week off will help him. Philadelphia, it gives them a week uh, to catch their breath. I mean, because that was a really rugged physical game where they pulverized the San Francisco 49ers. It is interesting, though. Think about this. By virtue of the bye week and the fact that Philadelphia had a bye week because they won the division and had the best record in the NFC, they have had two bye weeks in a four-week window. John, you can't put a price tag on health and rest going towards Super Bowl. How about that? Two off weeks in a four-week window. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, th this season we have seen so many injuries throughout the league. Um, you know, guys just getting crushed, not just in the playoffs, but throughout the regular season. I mean, this is a huge respite for these, some of these players. On we go, because there's a ton of news off the field, and this thing has changed really quickly. Where do you want to start? Yeah, so Sean Payton, breaking news. You know, did he kiss and make up with Denver? What's going on? Everybody seemed to make a U-turn in the middle of the road. As we tracked through this thing and we got to the middle of the week, what appeared to be dead, the relationship between the Denver Broncos and Sean Payton, 
came back to life. And the guy that many thought was going to wind up getting the job is gone somewhere else. Let's talk about Sean Payton. Let's talk about the Walton family, the Walmart money that owns the Denver Broncos. They both changed their mind. Peyton, a week ago, had canceled out the follow-up second interview after having had a four-hour interview initially in Los Angeles. It looked as if this was dead and gone, and that Peyton's game plan was they wouldn't give me what I want. I'm going to wait till next year and see what happens with the Dallas Cowboys and with the Chargers coaching job. They both gave. I'm led to believe that ownership agreed to allow Peyton to have the kind of payday he wants, 10 to $15 million per year, right out of the gate, be the highest paid coach probably in the National Football League. Denver's ownership also agreed to make the compensation available uh, to the New Orleans Saints to get Peyton out. They were dead set against giving up two number ones because what they gave up to get the Russell Wilson trade. They came back and they made two different offers to New Orleans and said, you pick what you want. You can have a number one this year and a middle round pick next year. Or you can have a number two this year and get our number one a year from now, which might be a lot higher than the number one that Denver would have to offer. Uh, the Saints said, yes, Saints will have to make the decision which offer they want. Two now or a, a one now and a later pick next season. Peyton backed off his demands. I want to bring my whole posse, my whole front office with me. George Payton will remain as the general manager of the Denver Broncos. So that being said, the deal there to be made. I think the big issue is everybody in the AFC West, look over your shoulder. Kansas City's good. Yeah, they're back in the Super Bowl again. All those AFC championships. The Chargers think they're really, really close. And now they have a new offensive coordinator to maybe fix the offense. And here come the Broncos. Now the Broncos got Sean Payton. And they got his playbook. And they got his resume. And they got Russell Wilson. And they got their left tackle back healthy. And they got the three wide receivers who were all nicked up last year. They're going to fall under the coaching ability of Sean Payton and his offense. And they got the running back, Javante Williams, who'll be completely healthy. And you got a track record of Payton player personnel. He's the one that found Alvin Kamara. He's the one that drafted Michael Thomas and developed him. He's a magnet for free agents from the outside. So all of a sudden, the landscape of the AFC West is a little bit different because it is the Chiefs who are elite. It's the Chargers who think they're close. And holy cow, here comes Sean Payton with Russell Wilson and all the ingredients that he's going to inherit. I, this is an amazing turnaround story to me. And now suddenly everything's changing in the AFC West. I mean, if you're a football fan in Colorado, this is great news because you've got two head coaches that are attracting all these players. You know, Neon Dion in, in Boulder and now Sean Payton at Mile High Stadium. But is does Russell Wilson, does he still have the magic to be a top-of-the-line quarterback in the NFL? I think he does because you got Peyton's dynamics. Look at what Peyton did to downtrodden New Orleans. You know how bad the Saints franchise was? And he got there, and he took the gamble on Drew Brees coming off shoulder surgery, and Brees sets all these records, and the Saints, the Saints of all people, holding up the Super Bowl trophy. As Sean Peyton was there in that ceremony. <laughs> so there's great credibility his resume speaks volumes, not just X's and O's, but player personnel, 
just the whole psyche and the approach. And granted, there's a black mark there because he was involved in, in Bounty Gate. He got suspended for a year along with a number of his coaches. The Saints paid a terrible price dollar-wise financially and draft pick-wise when the NFL sanctioned them for the headhunting situation. That being said, this is a really sharp guy. 152 career wins, nine wins in the postseason, Super Bowl, and he's going to Denver. I mean, and think think where the Broncos were five weeks ago, the Nathaniel Hackett mistake hanging around their neck, empty seats in that stadium in Denver, which is you never, ever see, animosity with the fans, the season ticket holders, the media. Think how their world has changed in a five-week time since the end of the season and the Nathaniel Hackett fiasco to where they are now with Sean Payton. One other side note as it relates to coaching, uh, and maybe maybe we needed to connect the dots on this. D'Amico Ryans was supposed to interview on Tuesday with the Broncos. He, of course, is the 49ers defensive coordinator. He backed out of the interview. He backed out, and he's taking the Houston Texans job. That kind of stuns me because they are devoid of players, and I think they have an ownership problem. Now, granted, they've kind of rebuilt the defense, but they don't have anything offensively. That being said, D'Amico Ryans goes in. He'll take his expertise on defense. I'm sure they will add some really creative guys on the offensive coaching staff, and Houston's got two fairly high draft picks. They're going to get one of the marquee kid quarterbacks. So this thing's really worked out well when it looked like it was going to be a mess. Peyton goes to the Mile High City. D'Amico Ryans is going to the Houston Texans with draft picks in his pocket and a pretty good defense that he inherits. Fascinating story. I mean, do you think the two signings were linked? Like maybe one of those uh, coaches dropped out of Denver and then took Houston, like, you know, and that enabled Peyton to come and sign with the Broncos? Or were these kind of separate deals that were on their own track? I think D'Amico Ryans was so excited when he heard the sales pitch from Nick Casario, the general manager of what's here and what's going to be here, that he decided to go there. Uh, and then Peyton, and and it may well be that he got he got tones from outer space that said <laughs> Peyton is back in it in Denver, and Denver's changed its mind, and they're both doing U-turns and reducing the things they were demanding from each other. So maybe D'Amico Ryan said, hey, I got another opportunity I think is the right opportunity. So these jobs, jobs have really filled fast. And, of course, prior to that, Frank Reich was hired by Carolina. So now we're sitting there to see what Arizona does. And they kind of got to be stunned because they wanted D'Amico Ryans. Have to see what Arizona does. And who knows what the Indianapolis Colts are, are going to do. That They're in another, another galaxy with the way they're running their football operation and their business. So that's that's the latest there. But there is a lot of stuff off the field about the NFL uh, as we, we talk about what's coming, which would be free agency and the new fiscal year. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about salary cap issues because, uh, you know, these teams are still trying to finagle their roster to get underneath the limit. Well, the salary cap, the National Football League has just announced the salary cap is rocketed. This is the highest jump in modern-day NFL football. Salary cap's going up $16 million for the coming season. It was 208 this past season. It will be 224 all-time record uh, going forward. Now, we've got a lot of teams that have a ton of cap space, led by the Chicago Bears. 
and they need cap space because they are devoid of talent and they have a tough decision to make. They got the number one pick. Do they take a quarterback? They already got Justin Fields that they gave the contract to. How do they fix their roster? But Chicago, Atlanta, the Bengals, a bit of a surprise, have a lot of cap space, but that's because they got a very, very young football team that's come together under the kid quarterback. Now, when they give Joe Burrows the contract extension, the cap space is going to be impacted. And the New York Giants, who had a Cinderella season, they did it with a lot of minimum budget players and a lot of young players, so they got a lot of salary cap space. So the intriguing thing is who's willing to go play for bad teams because Chicago and Atlanta are pretty bad. The Bengals' owners historically has been cheap as it relates to star players and free agency. The Giants might be the one because it's the Big Apple and they had such a good season, but they have to re-sign their quarterback, Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley, so that may eat up some of their salary cap space too. So those those are the ones there that have the most money. Does a player want a payday, even if it means going to play for a bad team like the Bears or the Falcons? Yeah, I mean, I think like they say, it's all about the Benjamins, right? <laughs> That's what they joke about. I mean, they're going to take the money. I mean, this is a big money league. And, you know, really, if you have an opportunity to be that player that can turn the Bears franchise around, I mean, you could be beloved there, just like so many other great Bears have been in history. But it is interesting to see the Bengals on the list because we said how the owner is kind of cheap. You know, is that an indication of why they've got so much cap space? Well, they went through bad times and they got a lot of young players and you pay young players a lot less. Mm -hmm. But that bill is coming due. I mean, we're talking Joe Burrow. Are we talking 40, 50 million a year contract for Joe Cool? That might be a possible storyline down road. Who does not have cap space? Boy, there's a couple of people in really salary cap hell. And New Orleans has got all types of cap problems. And I, I'm not sure how they're going to get out from under it because they had two guys arrive simultaneously as superstars and they had to keep them. Uh, Kamara is getting a phenomenal amount of money. Michael Thomas has had two years of injuries. He's getting a phenomenal amount of money. What? And, and then they drafted offensive linemen whose contracts came up and, and their, their defensive end, Cam Jordan, is making mega bucks. So the Saints got some really tough decisions to make as to who they're going to cut loose. Tampa Bay, uh, for a sub-500 team, uh, they got a real uh, series of contract problems. And I think there's going to be a shedding of guys off that roster, probably starting with Tom Brady, just like there's been a shedding of coaches uh, from Todd Bowles' coaching staff. So Tampa Bay's got, got contract problems. Jacksonville, obviously they got the quarterback and they've got some defensive players. They've got some salary cap issues. They got some dead money issues. And then the whole Green Bay quandary, Aaron Rodgers, love me, love me not. The amount of money that kicks in with this coming year's contract, et cetera, what do they do with him? So they got some cap issues. The Chargers, they've got cap issues because the amount of money they're paying to Keenan Allen and to Mike Williams, that's a combined $36 million to their wide receivers. You know, the, one of the rumblings out there, are they going to release Keenan Allen because of the cap? Are they going to try to trade Keenan Allen? What they should do if I were king. Well, you uh, are the franchise. Uh, bleeping <laughs> right, I am. If I were king, I would go to Keenan Allen and said, you've made a lot of money. Now you've had a lot of injuries. I need you to take a pay cut. I can't have you count $21.7 million against my cap. They can't do that to Mike Williams because they just gave him this contract extension that pays him $15 million per season. So I don't think they would do that. Uh, I'd be shocked if they hit the eject button on Keenan Allen at this point. But they they got cap problems. And obviously the Rams have got salary cap problems too. 
Uh, and, and that's because of the kind of contracts they gave to Aaron Donald uh, at the end of uh, this off past offseason and the amount of money that Matthew Stafford's knocking down. Uh, I don't think they're going to ask either of those guys to restructure their contracts, but there'll have to be some some adjustments there. Even though the cap is going up, you know, you you got every player on the roster is probably getting a pay bump. You got draft picks, you got free agency. So the the Chargers and, and Rams are going to have to move some money around, I would hope, without moving guys off their roster. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me the calculus that these teams go through because contracts are not guaranteed, right? They can just cut a guy and they can clear space immediately. But the signing bonuses are guaranteed. Right. And if, and if I cut you, John Riley, from this podcast, mm-hmm. the signing <laughs> bonus I paid you to put this together yeah. moves to the front of the line and you kill me in this year's coming cap. Well, okay. There's no prorated signing bonus. Mm-hmm. It's It's plain and simple. If I trade you and I gave you a big bonus, if I cut you, I have to swallow the cap hit. In some cases, there are teams that have dead money, $15 million players that they got rid of, traded or released or or retired. You're on the hook for the cap. So it's, it as you say, calculus. And I was never good in arithmetic. Calculus in the NFL is really complicated. Yeah, it's it's something. So we're going to see these teams have to make some really you know interesting moves. It's It's amazing how some teams are so far over the cap yet other teams are so far under. Um, so it makes you wonder, are are the, some of these teams that are under the cap, are they really playing to compete to win, or are they just trying to be competitive? No, they're bad franchises who have a lot of young players. Because in the NFL, much like the NBA and hockey, but not in baseball, in the NFL, you have to spend to a floor. The cap is going to be 224. The floor this coming year might be 216. Oh wow! You got to spend to the cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you if you're under the a little bit under the cap, you can carry that money and it goes into the next year's cap. Uh, but no, the NFL does not allow you to have an Oakland A's baseball franchise operation, where your payroll is 39 million and everybody else's the Yankees is like 219 million. The NFL does not allow that. So we'll keep an eye on the salary cap as we get to the right after the Super Bowl is when the new fiscal year kicks in. All right, let's talk about hot names on the board. Quarterback Derby will begin as soon as the Super Bowl is finished. And this is a unique marquee list of veteran guys that are out there that might be moving. We'll start with Jimmy Garoppolo coming off the fractured foot. Uh, Garoppolo is an unrestricted free agent. San Francisco cannot franchise tag him, which means he goes on the open market and he can negotiate with anybody. He could come back to San Francisco if he wished to come back to San Francisco, but I think he's looking other places. And the only glitch with Jimmy Garoppolo is just there's such an injury history. The wild one is Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, he wanted, and they negotiated during the course of the season, John, he wanted a Deshaun Watson contract, which is five years guaranteed from the first minute I sign it to the last minute I'm in your locker room. I'm guaranteed everything. Five years, $250 million. Wow. No, Baltimore said no. We're not guaranteeing you all five years. There's an injury issue here because the type of quarterback he is. Mm-hmm. So that thing is at loggerheads. Now, most people are of the opinion that Lamar Jackson will resign. What complicates it is he's his own agent. So really? we're sitting across the table from each other. Lamar, we love you. But you know what? In the fourth quarter of crunch time, you completed 51% of your passes. Lamar, we want you back. 
But Lamar, you're always getting hurt. Agents shield the player from the negative stuff that the owner wants to use as it relates to negotiations. Instead, Lamar's going to sit there and have to listen to whatever the adverse stuff is that's coming uh, from the general manager, Ernie DaCosta of the Baltimore Ravens. He's unsigned. I have a hard time believing he would leave. The Ravens could franchise tag him. They could tag him for one year and keep him. Price tag would be $32 million, one year only. But there's no security because if he goes out and he suffers a bad injury, there's no signing bonus. It's just $32 million flat, kind of John Riley type money. $32 million <laughs> flat, but if he gets hurt, all of his leverage and his bargaining power goes away. So it's a real big issue as to what they might do uh, with Lamar Jackson. Baker Mayfield is out there. Is he a true starter, big money starter? I don't think so. He did play well in spurts when he finally got to the L.A. Rams. He showed what he could do with better people around him. He's probably more affordable. And maybe he goes in on a one-year contract somewhere, signs and say, give me the ball, let me play, let's see what we can do, and then goes back on the open market uh, a, a year from now. Aaron Rodgers, love me, love me not. I don't think he's going anywhere because Green Bay's got a cap issue. I mean, if, if Green Bay were to trade him, that's a $31 million salary cap hit. They're not going to do that, even if they're getting the New York Jets' number one pick. So I think Rodgers winds up staying there. The Derek Carr quandary, he becomes a free agent in February if they don't pick up the option. And the question is, can the Raiders trade Derek Carr's contract? I hear Washington. Can they trade it to Washington? Does he accept the trade because he's got the full no-trade clause? You're not going to trade him to hell. He's going to pick and choose where he wants to go, but he's got to find the team that's got the cap space. So that thing remains interesting to see. I think the date on his contract option kicking in at $40 million, I think his date is February 14th. I don't think he's a $40 million a year contract, but he will be traded. Daniel Jones Giants is a free agent. Don't think New York lets him out of there. But again, he's going to get star money because he became a star player finally uh, in his final year of his original contract. Matt Ryan of Indianapolis, that's a one-year rental. Awful season with the Colts. Prior to that, tremendous seasons with the Atlanta Falcons. He's a very affordable quarterback. And I don't know what to make of Carson Wentz because every place he's stopped at now, he's been jettisoned out. And they're not going to bring him back in Washington, I don't believe, after Indy let him go, after Philadelphia let him go. So those are the marquee names to keep an eye on. You know, once we get to the day after the Super Bowl, when the free agent window opens, these guys, in most cases, are going to go on the open market. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens because some of these guys may not, you know, become the starting quarterback. They may be the number two wherever they land, um, you know, especially someone like a Carson Wentz. But you think about the 49ers and what they went through, you know, going through four quarterbacks and having nothing left in the tank. You know, it would have been nice to have one of these guys on the roster. I'll tell you what. And it makes me also wonder what the Niners are going to do with Purdy and, and, and with Trey Lance. So um, I'm, I think this is going to be very intriguing because every one of these guys is a marquee dude. But Matt Ryan may just choose to hang it up. I don't think so. I think he still wants to play. I don't think he's going to be allowed to come back and play where he was at this point in time. But, you know, you got all these veteran name guys. And we haven't even talked about the draft. You know, because there's probably four quarterbacks going to go in the first round of the draft, and two of them are going to go maybe in the top four picks. C.J. Stroud, Ohio State, Bryce Young, Alabama. So I, I can't recall in any recent years a offseason where we've had so many quarterbacks in the churn 
who could get their mail sent to a new address. Mm -hmm. And you got the kid quarterbacks on top of it. Hey, before we move on to talk baseball, uh, as our podcast continues going towards a great sports weekend, remind everybody how they can get involved, how they can subscribe and follow what we do uh, on the podcast and what we do on our website. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to follow Hacksaw on Twitter. That's another place you got to go because uh, he's always posting all of our clips and everything, a lot of mini polls, lots of action there. So subscribe wherever you get your podcast, subscribe on YouTube and follow Hacksaw on Twitter. And follow my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. It's written, it's really different. And you get all the stories early before they're on any of the other media. Let's go on. Let's talk Major League Baseball because we're just a couple of weeks out from the start of spring training. Yeah, I mean, the, the San Diego Padre fans are really excited. I mean, this fan fest that's coming up is sold out. I mean, they ran out of tickets. Everyone is ready to go. Padre is going to sell 24,000 season tickets. They're going to cap the season ticket sales this weekend. Uh, they're going to try to you know hold off about 20,000 individual game day tickets so all the fans have a chance to sample Padre baseball. Big storyline, Fernando Tatis. There's still an awful lot of questions here. Uh, Tatis has finally spoken for the first time in the offseason, says his shoulder is 100% healthy. Now he looks in the rearview mirror and says, gee, I wish I'd had the shoulder surgery prior. Mm -hmm. However, a little bit of concern to me, the, rest, the wrist is only about 80%. So the question marks about Tatis is what will he be like in spring training, being able to play? Will he have the strength and power that he's going to need to swing the bat because of the surgery in the wrist. That's the big issue. I think the second issue is where does he play? I assume it's probably center field. I don't think he's moving Juan Soto out of right. I don't think they want to send him out to left, which would be a strange experience for him. So then Tatis has to go through the learning curve of what it's like to be in center field. He's talked about this being a year of emotion, uh, that it's going to be really hard uh, to come back in San Diego. Will the fans greet him with open arms after what he did? He said, I stabbed my franchise in the back by the mistakes that I made. And he says, I'm going to learn from that. I'm you know, going to be a better team player that I, I really re messed up along the way. So I think his health is one issue. And only time will tell about that. And then his mental health becomes the second issue as to Will he be able to put all the bad decisions he made behind him? I think he will. I think he'll be accepted in the clubhouse. I hope he changes a little bit because I'm one of the ones that viewed him very differently. I don't know if there's too much cheerleading going on amongst my friends in the media, but I saw the money change that kid, and that bothered me. And then, obviously, he went off the track by some of the stuff that he got himself involved in. Fascinating the story. They're going to be a really, really good team if – Tatis can be what Tatis was before. That's the 290 batting average and maybe 40 home runs. And the new position, a little bit of a learning curve. John Riley's reaction, he's a fan. I, I'm a fan, and I'm excited for, for Fernando. I'm, I'm rooting for this kid to have that second chance and to redeem himself. Um, where does he play? You know, I, I heard they're working him out in center field, and he looks spectacular. But then the other line of argument is, is that maybe you put Tatis in right, keep Grisham in center, and then Soto moves to left. Not a bad idea as well. Um, but I really, really enjoyed the article in the UT last week. You know, Annie Heilbrunn and I think Kevin Acey covered it, where they were he, uh, Tatis and Joe Musgrove were at the um, doing this underwater training and it was workout like, warriors. Yeah, and it, they were, it was like kind of a lot about slowing your mind down, a lot of mental training, and I just thought that's a real mature thing for Tatis to be doing. 
Yeah, baseball. Baseball really is a grind. I mean, when you're in that clubhouse with these players and you see what they go through, 162 games in 180 days, I mean, John, it's a phenomenal wear and tear factor. Another issue off the field involving the San Diego Padres. How dare you do these things up in Denver? Go ahead. Yeah, this was great. I mean, it's just, it's so weird us being on the other side of this, you know, where you got the the owner in Denver kind of bad-mouthing the Padres for spending too much. Dick Monfort is the owner of the Colorado Rockies. A little piece of history here. You know, the Rockies have had some really good seasons over their long tenure in the Mile High City, home run derby, Coors Canaveral, and all that. Uh, at one point, when they were winning, they drew 4 million. 4 million fans when they were playing in the old stadium that had big seating capacity. Well, this ownership group, led by Dick Monfort, has come in and has paired the payroll. And they've made it a small market team in the city of Denver and the state of Colorado and the Rocky Mountain region used to be a regional franchise. Their payroll this past year was $131 million. It was down at the bottom. $131 million in what used to be a regional franchise. Where are they this morning? They're in last place. Again, again, again. And what's happened under Dick Monfort's reign as the owner of the Colorado Rockies? He traded Nolan Alarondo. He traded Troy Tulowitzki. He traded DJ LeMayu. They let Trevor Story walk as a free agent. He let his top pitcher, John Gray, walk as a free agent. And Dick Monfort is criticizing Peter Seidler for investing all of his wealth, pushing it to the middle of the table. This last place owner is criticizing the owner of a team that's got 93 wins. How dare he? And by the way, where's Major League Baseball? Since when does baseball allow one owner to criticize the business practices of another owner without some type of discipline? Dick Monfort might go to the mailbox and find a letter from Commissioner Rob Manfred informing him he's been fined $500,000 for doing what he did to pottery ownership. I mean, to me, it's 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 like the anonymous owners at the trade deadline after the Juan Soto deal was made, going public and kind of leaking to USA Today, what are the Padres doing? This is not sustainable. What the owner should be doing is bitching about Oakland and Pittsburgh and Baltimore and Kansas City, all taking revenue, sharing money and not spending it to put a better product on the field. So I can't understand why Dick Monfort would pop off about Padre baseball. It's it's stupid. Another reason to hate the color purple. Yeah, this is one of the worst owners in Major League Baseball. And, you know, he said, we think we might be able to be 500. I mean, so this guy clearly is not investing in his team. He's not playing to win. He's just trying to maximize his bottom line. So as a business owner, you, you got to say, okay, I kind of get that. But really, we want to see competitive baseball, all 30 teams in, in major leagues. And we want the NL West to be as strong as it can be. But now there's just going to be, you know, one cupcake in our in our division. Yeah. Look off there in the left. What do you see down the road? Oh, last place, Colorado Rocky baseball. And I feel sorry for Bud Black. He's a good man. Mm -hmm. And he has to manage in this environment with that owner. And the best Colorado Rocky wear players are wearing somebody else's uniform. Terrible. Let's talk Dodger baseball. we got two different dimensions of Dodger baseball here to talk about. Yeah, I mean, a passing of one of their legendary scouts that really was in their, one of their key Latin America guys. If I mention Dodger baseball history to you, history, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, Jackie Robinson. Okay, I'll just leave it at that point. Um the Dodger history involves the greatness of opportunity provided to players from other places. Jackie Robinson Negro Leagues, that was a start. 
Sandy Amaros, one of the first ones to come out of Cuba, played in the 1950s, made a couple of big plays in a World Series for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Japan, Hideo Nomo, hmm. amongst others. Mm -hmm. Mexico, can you say Fernando Mania? Yeah. And it's gone on and on and on. Well, the Dodgers were the first ones to go to the Dominican and open an academy. Nobody in baseball had done it. And Ralph Avila, legendary Latin American scout. He's a native of Cuba, lived in Venezuela, knows everybody in the Caribbean. Dodgers have hired him. He worked here for a long time. He passed away at the age of 92. Ralph Avila is the one that proposed the idea of Campos La Palmas. Training camp, Dominican Republic, under the palm trees for Dodgers. Every kid on the island wanted a sign to play for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers kind of owned that quadrant of the globe for a while. Then everybody else started to put academies into the Caribbean to find players. Amongst the players that uh, he, he signed, uh, does the name Pedro Martinez ring a bell? Mm. Does the name Ramon Martinez ring a bell? Uh, how about Raul Mondesi, uh, Mariano Duncan, Jose Vizcayano? Those are some of the players that he founded in the Dominican and brought to Dodger Stadium. And most of those guys had very, very good baseball careers. So he was he was the first. He was the flag carrier that planted the first flag and was a Dodger pennant uh, in the Dominican. Now everybody obviously scouts. Now we have the international uh, uh, signing bonus era. Uh, baseball's really become a global game, but he was the first of all time. Tremendous, tremendous man. And when you, you just think of the, the legacy of Dodger baseball, starting with the first black to the first Cuban, to the first Mexican, to what they did in the Pacific Rim, and obviously what Ralph Avila did uh, in the Dominican. And his son, Al Avila, uh, longtime general manager of Detroit Tigers, that family tradition continued. Yeah, well, I mean, you got you to gotta tip your hat to the Dodger franchise because they didn't, you know, put up with a lot of this racial discrimination, ethnic discrimination. They went out and got the best talent they could get. And they were innovators, what they did in the Dominican Republic. So, yeah, this is definitely a, a, a passing uh, of, of, you know, in Dodger history. Maybe a change in Dodger history this coming season as they get ready to go to spring training. Interesting conversation from the, their general manager, their president of baseball operations, Andrew Friedman. Dodgers are offering, offering the camp with a different roster. And there's been a lot of critique and a lot of response of, how come you're trying to get below the luxury threshold tax? This is Dodger baseball, Dodger stadium. This is the $230 million payroll, et cetera. These are rookies of the year and MVPs and Cy Young Award winners. And you let 10 guys go in the offseason. So Andrew Friedman says, we believe in what we're running here, the farm system and how we acquire players, et cetera. So these are the guys who are going to be in the Dodger lineup. Okay. There is no Justin Turner, but there will be Max Muncy at third base. There is no Trey Turner, but there will be Gavin Lux, who will be the starting shortstop. There will be no rotation at second base, but there'll be the hot young AAA prospect, Miguel Vargas. Uh, they obviously made a trade for a guy that's got a gold glove shortstop on his resume in Miguel Rojas from Miami. He's going to become their super utility guy. And there's no Cody Bellinger to replace by a journeyman, though he's had a nice career as a role player in Chris Taylor. Sorry, 
that batting order doesn't really scare me anymore wearing Dodger blue, does it, John? No, it doesn't at all. I mean, this is a big change with the L.A. Dodgers because we usually expect to see all-stars at every position. So it seems like, you know, we've talked about are they maybe plotting to, you know, get their their salaries in order so they can make a play for Otani next year. Bingo. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this. But, you know, let's see how these young kids do. I mean, the Dodgers, you know darn well that they're still going to be a strong team. They have great player development. So these guys are going to be good. And by the way, Chris Taylor always kills the Padres. That doesn't matter where they play him in the infield or the outfield. He's usually always a productive player. You don't, you know, you don't have to like him just or dislike him because he plays for the Dodgers. Just just to like him because he beats Padre pitching up. He finds a way to get it done. But yeah. It's a very, very different Dodger lineup for sure. Let's talk basketball for just a minute because now we're starting to move into crunch time, most important time to play games. Yeah, I mean, it's really the Aztecs, they're looking, they're getting better each week and they're going to have a tough schedule here in February. Five of eight on the road now. Obviously, it started with the game against Nevada. Uh, They've got a Boise State game. Then they got to go back into the thin air to go play at Utah State. And they still got to go to Albuquerque in the pit to play New Mexico. Uh, you know, as they started the week, they were 17 and four. I'll tell you, there's some things that just don't feel right about Aztec basketball right now. And I guess the word that comes to mind is streaky. And this deep into the season, with this much an experienced roster, I don't understand why they are so streaky. You never know from one night to the next what you're going to get from. Keisha Johnson, the big forward. He's a third-year guy now. And then Jaden Ledee, the transfer from TCU. There's some games where you say, wow. In other games, he's MIA. And I'm not going to be critical of Nathan Mensa, defensive player of the year, rim protector and all that. But it's like his offensive game, John, just plateaued. And I would have thought as a fifth or sixth-year guy in the program, coming back for the extra COVID year, that his offensive game would have developed more and is not. And in terms of the guards, Matt Bradley, big-time player. But, boy, he runs hot and cold in terms of hitting his shots. A little bit surprised that Darian Trammell, who started like a house of fire, has just absolutely disappeared offensively. You never quite know what you're going to get from Lamont Butler. We've had games where the team went one for 13 on threes. We've had games where the three guards I just mentioned went eight for 30 shooting. These are not first-year players kind of walking down the road for the first time ever. We're talking about experienced guys. So I'm not quite sure where they are or at least why there's no consistency. And and the other aspect is we've had games recently where they've blown 12 and 14-point leads and now are in crunch time making free throws to win or games in which the other guy's gone on a 14-0 run in the face of a team that historically is one of the great defensive teams in college hoops. So to me, it's boy, to me, it's been streaky and I don't understand where the Aztecs are from a a collective point as a team right now. And like I say, they're in a stretch now of five of eight games on the road. Your turn, you sit courtside, defend them if you wish. No, it's, it's interesting too. You're, You're right. They are streaky, but they still always figure out a way to win. You know, so whether they, you know, their defense, like in the first half of the San Jose State game, they were locked down. I think they held them to only 14 points in the first half. Um, But in other cases, you know, their rebounding will be good when when their shooting isn't good. And they just are able to find a way. And then meanwhile, 
Lamont Butler is really taking a huge step forward this year. Um, Keshad Johnson, streaky, yes, but lately has been very, very good. So it just seems like, you know, they sputtered at times in December and in January, but we could have a spectacular February if they get everything organized. I still am hoping that somehow, some way, they're going to win 30 games before we get to the end of March Madness. But, okay, let's go on and talk something a little bit different. We're going to talk NHL hockey uh, because they're mourning. Uh, this guy changed the National Hockey League twice in the course of his career. Bobby Hollis passed away at age 84. Unbelievable goal scorer. Gifted sniper. He changed the game while with the Chicago Blackhawks, where he scored 604 career goals. He and Stan Makita made the Blackhawks really special, teaming with Pat Stapleton and Tony Esposito. Hockey fans back in the day will remember those names. Bobby Hall created the curved stick, mm. and here he comes off the left wing, cranking up this shot, and he was a big physical specimen. 100 miles an hour slap shots. Wicked spin, those pucks dipping because he curved the stick. He changed the way hockey was played. History will tell you the great names in hockey are Gordie Howe, 801 career goals, what Wayne Gretzky did to revolutionize the sport, how Bobby Orr changed the style of play as a defenseman who could rush the puck up the ice, etc. Bobby, Bobby Hall reinvented hockey with the booming slap shot, he changed the game in the NHL. Then he jumped to the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey Association when that league was just starting in the early 1970s. Nobody was going to leave. NHL looked down at the World Hockey Association. They're not taking any of our players. Well, they did. Winnipeg took Hall. He was the first big name who jumped. Then Gordie Howe jumped. And then Jerry Cheevers jumped. And all these big names did. Because of Bobby Hall going to the WHA, it changed the salary structure of the National Hockey League, where guys could not be paid coal miners' pay to play in the NHL, and they had to up the salary structure. So the man, the man had phenomenal impact on the game. Off the ice, he had a real troubled past, a number of abusive issues with his wives, family issues. He's the father of a great player, Brett Hall. But at the end of the day, boy, was he famous, was he popular. And did he ever change the National Hockey League? And he did it twice. Wow. I mean, this this is a guy that, I mean, admittedly, I'm not a big hockey guy. We're going to change that. Okay. We got to work on it. Um, but this is a name that I've always heard. You know, Bobby Hull. I mean, one of the great ones, of course. I, I didn't know that about the curved stick, that he invented that. The one When I think of curved stick, I think of McSorley. You know, where he got, you know, fined or he got suspended by the NHL because it was curved too much. Um, but, uh, you know, Chicago Blackhawks fans, I know they're loyal to their team. Uh, so this is a, you know, a difficult day in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, I would guarantee all the people on our live stream will go to a goals game and the guy sitting down on the corner, banging on the glass, screaming at the players from Bakersfield or Calgary. John will be sitting down there, a non-hockey fan right now, but we're going to probably have to change that. Okay, let's move on. We got some other unique topics, names in the news to talk about. Yeah, I mean, so Novak Djokovic is just a really interesting guy, a great talent. But with all this COVID vaccine stuff, it's getting pretty tricky for him. Well, he got expelled from the Australian Open last year because he refused the vaccine. As as the world has changed, he was admitted into Australia. He did win the Australian Open. He kind of slugged his way to victory. However, big issue off the court. His father travels with him all the time. Jokovic is from Serbia. 
Um, his father, after Novak won the semifinal, was pictured out front of the stadium with a bunch of his friends. His friends were wearing T-shirts with the letter Z on them. Hmm. Z, Russia, Ukraine invasion. Serbia supports Russia in what's going on in Ukraine. Hmm. Yokovic's father is hanging with these three Russian friends of his who are Putin followers. They uproar globally in the tennis world towards Yokovic and his father and what the father did. Holy cow. Novak had to put that fire out. Where's the common sense in this? I mean, Ukraine, not paying attention. I understand you're from Serbia and Serbia backs the Russians and Putin. Wow. That's kind of a messy story. Yeah. I mean, the whole world is on Ukraine's side, except for like, you know, Russia and maybe Serbia and Yogovic's father and Yogovic's father. But so you figure that these guys got to understand the, their audience, you know, where they are. If they're at one of these major tournaments and you're wearing that, I mean, it's going to get a lot of raised eyebrows. Yeah, very much so. Uh, let's talk golf. Uh, PGA tour is underway. Uh, the European tour is underway. Rory McIlroy fighting to be number one in the world wins in Dubai. We talked last week about the ugly incident with Patrick Reed. Reed, of course, had jumped to the LIV, has filed a lawsuit against a pile of people on the PGA Tour, including Rory McIlroy, for comments he made about the LIV. So McIlroy comes down down uh, the final 18 on Sunday in Dubai, and he's tied with Patrick Reed. Absolutely amazing. So Rory hits a 15-foot putt on the 18th to win at Dubai. Enormous amount of money. Rory rockets to the top of the standings again. Does not shake Patrick Reed's hand on the 18th green at the end of the tournament. So this this war between McElroy, Reed, the LIV is continuing. But Rory's back, and Patrick Reed is still an outcast. Sidebar story, Phil Mickelson, just as, as, as the LIV is about to open their second year and play abroad, Phil Mickelson says, last year was disastrous. I was the most embarrassed I could ever be on the pro tour. And Mickelson looks very different right now. He lost 22 pounds in the offseason. He thinks he's going to get his game back. What he can't get back is his credibility for how he acted when he jumped across the street and took all the LIV money while saying those people are MFers killing people in Saudi Arabia. So that that controversy just continues to spill out there. The other factor is Phil, he played six tournaments in the LIV. For the six, he finished 35th to 45th in the each tournament. He didn't play well at all. So I don't know if he's got any gas left in the tank, but he's trying to resurrect his career. The guy on the right, Max Holma. This is a great story at Torrey Pines. First of all, John and I walk out there at Torrey Pines. You love the view. You love the golf. You love the women, the party atmosphere, etc. Max Holma wins. Comes from six shots back to win the Farmers Open last Sunday. Max Holma has lost his tour card twice because he's played so poorly. Had to go back to the Corn Ferry Developmental Series, which is the qualifier to get your PGA card. He came back and did it twice. So hats off to him. He's won six tournaments and kind of a spotty career. But, man, he was red hot. I've, and I felt really bad uh, for Sam Ryder, who had been the leader from day one into day four and lost that lead on Sunday, just could not keep the ball on the fairway. And John Rahm, who had been red hot, had put together phenomenal rounds on Thursday and Friday, I mean, five and six bogey or five and six birdies plus a double 
uh, and and then he fell apart on Friday with with double bogeys, and and I think he, I think he wound up on on the final round on Saturday. I think he had a double bogey and five bogeys. Just completely fell off the chart and finished way back of Max Homa. So there it is. Hit it out of the rough. Give me your thoughts on McElroy versus Reed. Your thoughts on Phil. Your thoughts on what that guy, Max Homa, just did. Well, let's talk about Torrey Pines because it's the the greatest tournament here. I mean, what a showcase for San Diego every time they have that tournament. Um, I was rooting for Ryder. I mean, you know, they interviewed his mom and they were walking the course and you're like, hey, this is the young kid. He's kind of, you know, this is the first time he's got a shot at winning a PGA tournament. Um, but yeah, he just crumbled at the end a lot of pressure yeah and homa was just locked in and so you know he drove it all the way home so good on him nice to see his wife there and his baby and they get to celebrate that together kind of like how john uh john um what's uh, john rom did right. previously with his wife and his baby um now going back to the liv phil mickelson how old is phil mickelson 52 52. So usually when you're over 50, you're on the seniors tour, right? I mean, they're not usually competitive against these, you know, young athletes in their late twenties. And he played a couple championship tour events. That's what they call it now, a couple of years ago. And he won them. And I thought, well, what a, what a great entree to leave the PGA. Cause at that point he was not winning to leave the PGA, go to the champions tour and just continue your legacy. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't do that. And he took this guaranteed money and the way he acted and what he said and, and then how he disappeared from the world. And it's it's too bad because he's been so good for the PGA Tour and he's a home hometown guy who did did great. But boy, he sure, sure made bad decisions, I think, recently. And what do you think about McElroy and what McElroy and Patrick Reed are doing? And this is not going away because because the LIV guys are going to be allowed to play in the Masters. The Masters at Augusta has indicated if you qualified in the past to be part of the Masters tournament, a win, et cetera, you can come play, even if you're in Saudi Arabia taking blood money. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting what they've done. The U.S. Open's not made a final decision, but obviously the Ryder Cup has told these guys, no, don't cross the street. You're not allowed now to play for your flag. So. The, this war of words is not over. Yeah, I, I'm I'm interested to see those dynamics play out in the Masters. But you know, you say they didn't shake hands. You know, it's, I just noticed this in the tournament uh, at Tory is that when they come off the 18th green, usually that's when they go shake the hands of of the other players in their in their group and the caddies. That's nice how they always take off their cap. You ever notice that? And I guess it's just the gentlemanly way they do it in golf. But McElroy was is one of the one of the hot players, one of the young stars in the league, and yeah, we haven't seen him. So now we're going to hopefully see him in Augusta. Okay. Well, that's where we are. We got a couple of other items. Time for the fans forum here because there's so many things to talk about, and everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a question. John, post a few here from our viewers on live stream. Okay. So here's one. This is on the YouTube comments from Scott Zundel. He says, "Charger." This is in reaction to the potential release of Keenan Allen so the Chargers can get below the salary cap. Charger player out for three games with a high ankle sprain. Mahomes doesn't miss one game. That, folks, is why the Chargers are what they are. Well, that's a little bit over the top in terms of criticism. Please understand, all injuries are different. High sprains are different from player to player. It could be a high ankle sprain. It could be an issue. It could be a bone bruise. So unless you went to medical school, you know, stay away from how bad the injury is. 
Uh, but I'll tell you what, Mahomes moving around and he got hurt. Uh, he got hurt rolling to the left, making a throw, landing on the right ankle. He limped again, but he got it out. He came back at the end and they needed him to run 12 yards at the end to try to keep the drive going. He, he ran up the sidelines and then, of course, he got aided by the personal foul penalty by the Bengal linebacker, which got him into field goal range and they won, wound up winning the game. Uh, but, you know, the Chargers have just been devastated by injuries. I, you know, they're evaluating their coaching staffs. I said this before, John, on our headline segment, that they need to evaluate where they are with their team physicians and their training because they've just had an inordinate number of football injuries. But then again, maybe it's it's just the game of football. It's so big, it's so fast, it's so physical. And they get guys rolling up guys' knees and guys getting caught in blocks and tearing their pectoral muscle and uh, you know, getting blindsided and falling on their left shoulder. Now your quarterback's got a torn labrum. So I I just think it's a game of football, and Lady Luck has not, not shined on the Chargers. But you can't compare this ankle injury in Kansas City to the Chargers' ankle injury, and why is my guy not back on the field when the quarterback is? Yeah, the injuries have been everywhere in this league. And you know, we talked about how Jerry Jones wants to add another game to the regular season. Um, are the play, is the players' union going to go for that? Because we know there's going to be more injuries, more devastation. You know, so it's all about money. It's, it's all about money. But I, right. I don't think I don't think I don't know very many people aside from the fans, very many people that are in, interested in an 18th regular season game because the, the the wear and tear factor on players' bodies unbelievable. Next question on fans forum. What do we got? Okay, so this is in reaction to the worst moment in Chargers history. Oh. And we had so many people that had comments. And it was, this goes to the Marlon McCree thing. And it's a little bit long, but I want to read it. It's a, and this is from um, Initiator Hater 0688. He says the Marlon McCree is the most painful one. I'm not a Charger fan, but I was rooting for the Chargers in that game. I was already tired of Tom Brady and the Patriots at the time. While the Marlon McCree fumbled pick, no doubt contributed to the Chargers' loss in that playoff game, I'm not sure if it was the game-sealing interception if McCree hadn't fumbled since there was like six minutes and 15 seconds remaining. But nevertheless, if the Chargers had gotten the ball back, they just needed a couple of first downs to kill valuable time off the clock. Well, 688, I'll buy most of what you had to say. But you know what? It's the way these guys are wired. Marlon McCree makes a play that would save the game and then tries to make the second play to move the football up the field. Bingo fumble. Tom Brady gets the ball. We know the history after that. It's like the Bengal linebacker in the AFC championship game. Mahomes is making the run to the sidelines, trying to get out of bounds. The linebacker is chasing him at 105 miles an hour, trying to get there so he does not go out of bounds so the clock would continue to run and then be able to go to overtime. Instead, he belts the guy just over the line, personal foul penalty. We know the history there. These guys are wired to play to the whistle. That's the way it works. Mm -hmm. And that's tough. Uh, but, you know, the more I put that topic on the table weeks and weeks ago, worst moment in Charger history, this was in the aftermath of blowing the 27-0 lead to Jacksonville. I still tend to think, despite the Dan Fouts interception game and despite the horrors of, of some of the other playoff losses, worst moment was when Spanos took this team out of San Diego. That, to me, is the worst moment in Charger football history. You can argue with me, but you'd be wrong. You can't argue with a talk show host, but go ahead, John. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's been so many moments throughout history. I mean, when did the Marlon McCree thing happen? It was like 06, maybe? 
So, somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. But, you know, as Charger fans, we just never get over it, you know. And, and that was like almost 20 years ago. Um, so we we just want to have a winner in San Diego. Maybe we have a shot with baseball this year. Well, part of, you know, part of the conversation says cup half empty or glass half full. So when fans bring up, i only been to one Super Bowl. You got your doors blown off by Steve Young, et cetera, et cetera. I have, my response has always been, the cup, it's half full. I'm remembering Dan Fouts, Air Coriel. I'm remembering Stan Humphreys. I'm remembering the drive to the Super Bowl. I'm remembering Philip Rivers and LT and Antonio Gates. So I just kind of get the broom out and sweep the negativity away because I remember the positive times. I will say this, though. When we get to the finish line on this conversation, Spanos took our team, but he can't take our memories and he can't take the lightning bolt out of San Diego. And I don't care how they sell themselves, who they think they are, first family of football and all that other Archie Bunker crapola up in Los Angeles. The San Diego Chargers were better received and better served by 55 years of loyalty in the community here. And I don't think the Chargers in L.A. will ever, ever be the success they could have been if they kept these guys here in San Diego. Yeah, I mean, what a disappointment. And and I don't think there's any way they're going to be able to, you know, have, come back to San Diego. I don't know if we'll ever get another NFL team. But, you know, the memories always stick with us. You know, show me your lightning bolts, <laughs> right? I think I remember the good times. And if you like, if you're a Charger fan, I'll close our podcast this way. If you're a Charger fan... And I know you guys spend time on the internet. I want you to Google, just go YouTube, San Diego Chargers drive to the Super Bowl. Because I did a project with NFL Films, and we put together the highlights of the greatest moment in Charger history. Not a Fouts 500-yard game, and not Rivers, and not LT, and all that. The greatest moment was the AFC Championship win at Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh where we shut those bleeping fans in Pittsburgh up and they could use their terrible towels, crying towels, walking out of the stadium after Bobby Ross's Chargers beat the Steelers to give us the ticket to go to the Super Bowl. So just just Google that. YouTube, San Diego Chargers Road to the Super Bowl, NFL Films Package. You'll, you'll like it. Hey, listen, we thank you for joining us on our podcast as we go towards this great sports weekend is a bye weekend. Hope you enjoyed all the different topics we put on the table. Please subscribe right now. So you'll get all the alerts, go to the bell on YouTube, punch up the information. So you get the alerts every day of the week when we post something and check my website. If you like sports, if you like my talk show, even if you didn't, you will get all the stories there are. Every story, every team, every day. It's on my website, leehacksawhamilton.com. John, have yourself a great sports by weekend. Mm -hmm. We will see you a, uh, Monday with bonus coverage. That's right. Looking forward to it. Thank you. And thanks for being with us. Hope you enjoy what we're doing on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to leehacksawhamilton.com.